As we continued in worship, let's recite it together. Shema Israel, Adonai Eloheinu, Adonai Echad. Hear, O Israel, the Lord is our God, the Lord alone. Love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your strength and love your neighbor as yourself. Our scripture passage from, for this morning is from the book of Hebrews in the New Testament. We're following the lectionary for Advent, and so we're looking at Paul's New Testament letters that are on the lectionary. Today we have Hebrews. Hebrews is actually a sermon. It's a sermon that is written or preached by um, a, a man or woman who followed the disciples a generation later, is what most people say. The person who wrote the book of Hebrews had quite a command of the Greek language, but they also understood Hebrew as well. So our passage for today is from Hebrews chapter 10, beginning with verse 5. Hear this portion of God's story. It is impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take sins away. That's why when the Messiah comes into the world, this is what he says. You didn't want sacrifices and offerings. Instead, you've given me a body. You didn't like burnt offerings and sin offerings. Then I said, look, here I am. This is what it says about me in the scroll, the book. I've come, O God, to do your will. When he says earlier, you didn't want and you didn't like sacrifices, offerings, burnt offerings, and sin offerings, all which are offered in accordance with the law. Then he says, look, I've come to do your will. He takes away the first so that he can establish the second. And it's by that will that we have been sanctified through the offering of the body of Jesus the Messiah once and for all. Amen. You can have a seat. Fred Craddock was one of my favorite preachers, um, taught at the seminary uh, where I went to school. And he said about Hebrews that Hebrews is a sermon that's written by a preacher that is in danger of losing the congregation. So these people that are receiving this letter are barely hanging on. Their attendance is lax. And their commitment to the faith is weak. It's as if they're asking, why does it matter anyway? What's this worth? And is it worth the trouble? The writer of Hebrews knows the audience well enough to go to Medlin. And the solution that the preacher gives to them is the assertion of good thinking or right theology. I get this, that what we think matters That what we think about the world, what we think about ourselves, what we think about our faith affects how we live out our lives. It's why William Paul Young wrote, bad theology is not a victimless crime. Because bad theology enslaves, but good theology, good thinking makes a way, parts the raging waters. Good theology, good thinking leads to freedom. When we get to the point that we start to say, it doesn't matter, the practice of the faith doesn't even matter, then this book in the Bible, the book of Hebrews, seeks to light a fire underneath us. Have you ever been in a situation or a relationship where you thought or specifically asked the question, what do you want from me? I can remember asking that question as a student, you know, like at the beginning of the school year, 
or at college when the semester started? What exactly do I need to do to learn the material that the teacher wants me to learn? What do you want from me? But I've also asked that question of people with a little more fire in my belly, with some exasperation. What do you want from me? This is too demanding. You're unpredictable. I don't get it. How can I ever succeed? I'm destined to fail with you. I took college calculus as a sophomore at A&M, and my class was taught by a teaching assistant who was a graduate student from Germany. The very first quiz that she gave to the class a couple of weeks into the semester was on a sheet of paper that was passed down the aisles to everyone in the class, and on that sheet of paper, the instructions for the problems that she wanted us to solve were written in German. The girl who was sitting beside, behind me started to cry. The guy who was sitting next to me yanked up his backpack and stormed out of the classroom. And I sat there thinking, what in the world, professor, do you want from me? I am destined to fail this class. Well, I think that the writer of Hebrews finds their congregation in a similar condition. These are people who are under the impression that the task that is in front of them, that living out the faith is impossible, that it's too demanding, that it's unpredictable. So why even bother? They are asking, God, what do you want from me? The answer that the passage that I just read from Hebrews chapter 10 has to that question begins with the statement, let me tell you what I don't want from you. What God does not require from us, Hebrews says, is blood sacrifices, the blood of bulls and goats, blood offerings, sin offerings. So these were offerings of an animal uh, the life of the animal that were made in the Jerusalem temple with the oversight of a priest. And these sacrifices were made repeatedly for the forgiveness of sins. They were made repeatedly because the effect didn't stick. So it was like sin, make an offering, sin again, make another offering, make another sacrifice. And that was the old covenant. But the new covenant has a new high priest that the writer of Hebrews wants us to know about. That new high priest is the Messiah, Jesus the Christ, and the new high priest does not come into the world to make animal sacrifices. Jesus comes into the world to do the very will of God. Jesus is clear about who God is. From the very beginning of Jesus' story, it's obedience to God's will. Jesus is in line with who God is and what God wants, what God's will is all about. My New Testament professor uh, was a man named Luke Timothy Johnson, and he wrote about the book of Hebrews. Nowhere in this book does the writer claim that God's attention or God's care has been shifted from the Jewish people or has come to an end. Protestant theologians have made that mistake about this book in the Bible. But the claim of Hebrews is instead that ritual practice doesn't guarantee God's presence. You know this. You know that there's no magic formula for relationship, for any relationship. A relationship is dynamic. It's so much more than just going through the motions. So I can't guarantee you 
that a morning quiet time is going to usher in God's presence to you any more than I can guarantee you that saying I love you to your spouse or to your child every night is going to cause them to love you back. I think that both of those, both a quiet time and saying that you love you love the people who are in your life are good ideas, but we don't engage in rituals to control. David Mitnitsky reminded me this week that a spiritual discipline is any practice that I engage in that increases my capacity to love and enjoy God. So a spiritual discipline is anything that I do that increases my capacity to enjoy God. Spiritual practices and rituals, worship, prayer, tithing, scripture reading are for me. They're not magic incantations to manipulate God. So in the book of Hebrews is a quote from the Psalms in the passage that we read this morning. Hebrews uses a quote from the Psalms to make the argument that these sin offerings, these blood offerings have come to an end and the words are put into the very mouth of the Messiah. The writer of Hebrews says that Jesus speaks these words. They come from the 40th Psalm beginning with verse 6 and verse 6 says, Sacrifice and offering, O Lord, you do not desire. Sacrifice and offering, O Lord, you do not desire. This psalm, Psalm 40, is attributed to King David. So it was written long before the Messiah shows up. And the idea that blood sacrifices and sin offerings aren't doing the trick is not a new idea in the first century. The readers and the singers of the psalms already know this. And Jesus' contemporaries, they're all singers of the Psalms. They're memorizers of the Psalms. They know the words of Psalm 40. Mid-first century, when uh, Jesus' disciples and, and their, their converts were writing and teaching, a faithful Jew could still travel to Jerusalem to offer a blood sacrifice in the temple. And, and they would do this under the supervision of a priest at the temple in Jerusalem. But they had another option in the time of Jesus. Their other option, instead of making this long, arduous journey to Jerusalem, they could also offer songs and prayers in their local synagogue under the supervision of a rabbi. And the rabbi that was leading the service in the synagogue in their local town wouldn't lift up a bloody sacrifice but instead, the rabbi would lift up teachings of scripture. And what became of primary importance in the synagogue was the formation of character in the worshiper. For Jesus' contemporaries, formation of character was the beginning of this, this idea that character was taking precedence over ritual practice. Then Jesus comes on the scene. Jesus shows up. And Jesus offers transformation, life transformation for everyone who follows him. Jesus taught things like, you've heard it said, love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I say to you, love your enemy and pray for those who persecute you. You've heard it said, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. But take this transformation on. But I say, if anyone forces you to go one mile, go two. Jesus said, don't be anxious about anything in your life. And when asked about who is my neighbor, remember Jesus responded with a story that essentially said, everyone is your neighbor, anyone is your neighbor. 
following Jesus makes a difference in the lives of the people who follow him. It makes a difference in how we show up in the world and how we treat one another. So Dallas Willard, a a theologian, taught that theologically speaking, our heart is the aspect of us that's central. The heart is the part of us that's the core of our being. It orients us. And so Willard taught when you're reading scripture and you see this word heart in scripture, the heart is particularly noticeable in our character and how we show up in life and how we interact with other people. My kids went to go see that movie, the new movie, The Grinch, uh, this week. And so I was thinking about The Grinch as I was also thinking about Dallas's Willard idea about the heart. Remember, it's the Grinch, how he interacts with the world or how he doesn't interact with the world uh, that reveals that his heart is two sizes too small. So yeah, that, that's that, that idea of the heart being about your character, about how you interact with the world. When the writer of Hebrews quotes from Psalm 40, when he quotes verses 6 through 8, he or she leaves off the last line of that stanza. Um, so I suspect that the readers or the hearers who knew this psalm by heart uh, knew that the last line of the stanza was the punchline. They knew that it was important. So I'm going to read the first part of verses 6, six through 8, and I'm going to get you to read with me the punchline that's highlighted up there in white. Sacrifice and offering you did not desire, but you have given me a body. Burnt offerings and sin offerings you did not require. Then I said, here I am, I have come, it is written about me in the scroll. I desire to do your will, my God, because your law is within my heart. Jesus was who he was because God's law was his point of orientation. God's law was in his heart, the core of his being. It was central to who he was. Jesus wasn't programmed to be obedient like a computer or a robot. But the Gospels tell us that Jesus loves what God loves. So I have, poor, I have people in my life that I love. I have my people. And what I've noticed about my people is that things that are important to them are also important to me. I made a list this week of those things, a list of things that are important to me, not because of my own personal independent interest in those things, but because somebody that I love showed me about the importance of those things. There are things like Little League baseball, high school basketball, Aggie football, the country of India, and Washington, D.C. I have a new interest in Washington, D.C. And college campuses, high school graduation requirements, I'm very into that right now, and theater. I love things like construction sites, and I never used to have any interest in construction sites, and dogs and horses and fishing at the Texas coast, and needlepoint and mosaics. And I also realized as I made my list that there are names of theologians that people I love have introduced me to. And I could even put scripture and church on my list because both scripture and church were introduced to me by people whom I love. It's not empty practices 
empty rituals that God wants from us. That's not everything. In fact, it could be almost nothing. Like putting on your wedding ring every morning isn't everything to your spouse. It could mean nothing. But it's time and it's interest and it's care that make a difference. God wants us to love what God loves. When we put what God loves in our hearts, it orients us. It becomes central to who we are, and it leads us to a greater freedom. I want to love what God loves. I want God's law in my heart. I have a video that I want you to see. It's um, a video of teaching by a man named Rowan Williams. And Rowan Williams, at one time in his career, was Archbishop of Canterbury. Um, Since then, he's um, become an author. He's written over two dozen books. He's a famous uh, lecturer and speaker and teacher. And what he is going to say when he asks the question, what does God want from me? His answer is to absorb God's heart. And I think that's exactly right. And what he says in... um, and in a much more eloquent way than I said, and in a much with a beautiful British accent, what he is going to say is that we absorb God's heart by giving away love. We take on who God is by giving away love as Jesus did, as that was who Jesus was. So watch this video. <laughs> 